This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. On today's show, actor and comedian Cole Escola, a YouTube star turned New York stage veteran and lead performer on the True TV series At Home with Amy Sedaris, Escola discusses his early life growing up closeted in small town Oregon. I would try to do my own version of conversion therapy that I made up in my head, which is fucked up but also funny. So I would jerk off thinking about guys and then at the last second change it to a girl. But it was always the same girl and it was always Audrey Hepburn. His early online comedy skits before terms like YouTube star even existed. If I sound like I'm bragging, please know that I'm fully ashamed of my career online. Auditioning for Saturday Night Live. The feedback I got was that the fact that I was in my underwear was really distracting. Shut up, Evan. Hey guys, what's up? This is Evan Ross Katz, and you're listening to Shut Up, Evan, a podcast about gay shit and internet culture. I'm Evan Ross Katz. I'm here with my producer, Alden Peters. Hi, hey. Alden. Hey, Evan. How's it going? Pretty good. Episode two. Episode two. Um, so we have Cole today, who yeah. made his start on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And you just wrote an article uh, for Rolling Stone about the 15-year anniversary of YouTube. I did, yeah. So 15 years of YouTube. Can you believe it? Um, there's like that moment on Sex and the City where it's like Carrie's birthday, and she looks across the room, and there's the other woman, and she goes, 25! Fuck, I'm old! <laughs> um, and that's what the YouTube anniversary makes me think of. Um, but yeah, this piece specifically was talking to drag performers and, and drag-adjacent figures. So I talked to Lady Bunny, I talked to Soju, I talked to Willem, I talked to the creators of Drag Race about the ways in which YouTube has impacted drag as an art form. For the good and, and for some bad. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes below, but tell us some of the ways that that influence has happened. Well, I'll do a story in which I'm talking to multiple people about a single a single subject. And sometimes one of those people will sort of say something that kind of like unlocks the piece. Yeah. And that happened with Lady Bunny. I was on the phone with Lady Bunny talking about the story and basically asking her as someone who was a part of the East Village drag scene of the 80s and 90s, what yeah. it's like for her you know, watching a lot of present day queens Mm -hmm. come up via YouTube. And she sort of talked about it as a really great thing in that it sort of pushed people who might not have gotten the okay from network executives, might not have been like TV friendly, if you will. Mm -hmm. YouTube gave them a place to be them 
with themselves in the driver's seat. Yeah. So never having, you know, I'm thinking even about this current season of Drag Race and two of the queens, the New York queens, Jan Sport and Britta Filter, have had to change their names to Jan Sport is now going by Jan on the show and Britta Filter is going by Britta. And that's because, because of the copyrights. Because of the copyrights. Um, and so YouTube to me, and what I gather from some of these interviews, is really a space in which it's like, you never have to deal with any of that like, hetero like mumbo jumbo right i know it's not like inherently hetero but it's just kind of like the gatekeeping of television youtube sort of like evades that now it's important to note this was brought up by several of the people i spoke to it's not as though youtube has been this utopia entirely you know there's been a lot of ways in which they've prevented lgbtq people's content from getting out there or demonetized it in some senses so actually taken away you know um the opportunity for lgbtq people to make money and monetize their content yeah um so it's important not to paint it as like this promised land of any sense, but it did create avenues for LGBTQ people, like our guest today, Cole, to get their work out there in ways that they otherwise could not have. And that is a great segue into our guest for this episode. It sure is. And that, you know, it just came out of nowhere for me. <laughs> Cola Scola is the co-creator and star of the beloved cult hit TV series Jeffrey and Cole Casserole, and has appeared as Matthew on Difficult People, Sean on Mozart in the Jungle, Chassie Tucker on At Home with Amy Sedaris, and, perhaps most famously, as Coat Check Clerk on Smash. He started his YouTube page in 2008, starring in Joyce Connor's rant about the warm weather for a minute. He followed that up with hits, including Masterpiece Classics, A Straight Guy Pissing All Over a Toilet Seat, Gay Vlog, Gay Vlogger, Gay Vlogging, Gay Gay, and The Goblin Commuter of Hoboken. Among his most viral hits is a 2015 video titled Mom Commercial, which I feel is required viewing. In 2012, Escola starred opposite Justin Vivian Bond in Scott Whitman's Jukebox Jackie at La Mama. In 2014, he originated the role of Bridget Everett's Fetus and Rock Bottom for the Public Theater. His solo sketch shows have had sold-out runs at Joe's Pub. His friend and former co-star Billy Eichner said this of Escola in a 2017 New York Times profile. All of his characterizations are both demented and affectionate. He has a bone-deep knowledge of who these people are. Scott Whitman offered additional praise, saying that Escola is, quote, a great low comedian and a sophisticated satirist. That's a great combo platter. He is talented, brilliant, incredible, amazing. Show-stopping, spectacular, never the same, totally unique, completely not ever been done before. Unafraid to reference or not reference, he is Cole Escola. That makes me sound a thousand years old. <laughs> what did I leave out? Just uh, all my exes, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that's that's all that's missing. Okay, so let's start by uh, zooming out on the mom commercial. Mm-hmm. I love so much of your work, but I love that commercial. Thank you. If you were to explain that commercial to someone who hasn't seen it, what's going on in that commercial? Um, it, it's just a, a parody of a, a mom character in every commercial for anything you've ever seen. Um, and then and then it just takes a turn. For instance, did you know that one glass of the leading brand of orange juice contains twice the amount of sugar your kids should be getting in a day? When I found that out, I, um, I fucking lost it, I mean. <laughs> I had been giving my kids leading brand orange juice their whole lives. I thought, my God, if I'm capable of that, what else am I capable of? So I panicked. 
I had to get out. I, I took the plates off my Honda and I just started driving and... Anyway, cut to two months later, the craziest night of my life. I'm at a dog match, counting up my winnings for the night, and I come up a couple hundred dollars short. I confront Puka. I say, you took my money. Of course, she denies it, so I draw a gun and I fire two warning shots. But I wasn't, um, wasn't looking where I was shooting. And I killed two, I killed them. Still can't say it. <laughs> That's it. Did Simple you script it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I did that. Um, I did it in my live shows um, at the duplex, and then I filmed it. I always think about the moment uh, when you're taking the cookies out of the oven mm-hmm. because of the sound that you used of the the timer. Mm-hmm. Puka introduced me to the world of dog fighting and death metal. <laughs> How much are you thinking about moments like that and crafting those moments? I mean, I, I, I shot that video with my friend Darone Max Hagai, who is now making uh, videos at SNL. Those we just came up with because the script is a monologue, and so we were just trying to find fun ways to break it up. By the end of the commercial, I the journey that had happened um, yeah. was just so enormous. Yeah. Are there other comedians in the past who have done work that sort of is in a similar headspace? I mean, I don't know um, consciously if, if you know, when you grow up watching people, you're not like, oh, I'm going to use that. But, like, I've always been a fan of Amy Sedaris. I grew up on the ladies of SNL, you know, especially the holy trifecta of Molly Shannon, Anna Gesteyer, and um, Sherry O'Terry. What's it like? Uh, I, had a, I had an experience. Sarah Michelle Gellar is my idol. Yeah. And I had an experience uh, where I got to meet her and then subsequently interview her and sort of form this acquaintanceship. Yeah. And you are mm-hmm. now working with someone who you reference as really being, it sounds like a comedy idol yeah. on some level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's that like when you form a relationship with that person where they are no longer, well, there will always be that idol, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but they're also someone who is a friend mm-hmm. and, and a confidant. It's um, outrageous. It's so bizarre. I uh, She's just such um an incredible friend and she's just so warm that she's not intimidating at all. I think she's probably the only person who is exactly what you would want them to be. Which are like, I think my favorite kind of people. Yeah. yeah. There's also a quality about her and people like that, mm-hmm. that it's like, you. I just know she would be that in real life because it's such a pure, her, her, her essence is so pure. Yeah. So it's good to hear that she's yeah like that. Really, she would hate you though. Yeah, no, I'm kidding. No, no, I, I get it. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been reported uh, in this New York Times piece that I was just talking about with you that you have a collection of 35 wigs mm-hmm. that you store under your bed in 7-Eleven donut boxes. Yes, and I just am so curious why 7-Eleven. Because in my old place there was a 7-Eleven a, a block away, and um, I saw these donut boxes there, and I thought, oh, they have like a a little window at the top of the box. So that would be nice to like see what the wig is inside. And so I was like, can I buy these? And they said, just take them. So then the rest is history. The rest is history. What constitutes a good wig? Well, it's actually pretty hard to find wigs that I like because most wigs are like fashion wigs, like people wanting to look good, not necessarily people wanting to look like 
you know, a soap opera star from 1993. So it's it's pretty hard. Anything that doesn't look pretty. Yeah. Things that look weird, you know. When you put a wig on and you film any kind of sketch or do a live show, are you doing drag? I don't know. I don't, I've always been so curious about that with you. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Be, I mean, I've seen you referenced in stories mm-hmm. as as drag queen, um, co- comedian, actor, drag queen, etc. Right. And I've always, I've never thought of you that way. Right. But I, I'm so curious. I mean, I don't identify as one only because that takes so much more work than I actually put into like the look. I don't do that much work to like beat my face and like go out there and earn those dollar bills. Yeah. And yet, if I were to think of, like, the greatest Bernadette Peters drag queen that I know, Mm -hmm. I would immediately think of you. Well, thank you. I mean, that's that's because I I cornered the market there. (laughs) I picked someone that no one was really doing. And your first name? Bernadette, as in the saint. Or as in Bernadette Peters. Right, fellas? Anyone can whistle, that's what they say. I'm sorry, Miss Peters? I'll probably be nominated for a Tony, and I'll probably win. There definitely is, tell me how you feel, a certain kind of gay person Mm -hmm. who a reference like Bernadette Peters is so meaningful for them. Yeah. This reverence Mm -hmm. for a certain kind of woman. Mm -hmm. What is that? (laughs) Um, I have no idea. It's just like in my in my DNA, like watching The Wizard of Oz when I was a kid. I didn't know that was a gay thing, but I was drawn to it anyway. You know what I mean? Like, what is that? Yeah. So it's just um, the gay gene. Yeah. I chalk it up to that. Yeah. I know there, there's something too about even now going back and rewatching it when it flips into Technicolor mm-hmm. and it's just feels so queer. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, just such a simple gesture. Yeah. And yet, it feels mm-hmm. like it was doing a lot for us. Um, <laughs> I'd love for you to unpack this quote you gave to the New York Times. Okay. Uh, because when I first read it, it really made me snap my fingers in mm-hmm. agreement. You said, I would much rather be in something for two minutes and have it be great than do those supporting character parts that are like, how did the date go? Yeah. I love that quote because I think it's very... It, it informs a lot about who you are and it informs a lot about uh, your approach to comedy and, mm-hmm. and how... I always think about you as like squeezing every drop out of the sponge. Thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Greedy. Can you unpack that quote a little bit? Well, I just hate those kinds of roles. Like they're not fun for me. I don't I don't know. I just I sort of follow what I what is fun for me. People can sense when you're doing something and you love it and when you're just doing something because you want to be seen yeah you know yeah yeah let's go back to your youth you grew up in Klatskany 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 Mm -hmm. Oregon I think the last census report from that town came out in 2010 Mm -hmm. I think it was like 1950 a population 1950 yeah I consider that small town yeah growing up did you feel like you were in a small town yeah absolutely Mm. yeah I hated it (laughs) I wanted out as soon as possible and how much of that was connected to you being a gay man? Probably a lot of it. I always had a sense that I just had to wait until I could leave. Going to school, I never tried hard, you know, to get good grades or anything. It was just like, just get through this, and then you can 
have the life that you want. And then I was always told, you know, by adults, like, well, wait till you grow up and you have to start paying bills. And like, I, I was always like suspicious, like, well, is adulthood going to be awful? And um, I'm happy to report that it's just as great as I thought it would be as a child. I was nervous you were going to go the other way. With no, like, no, 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 <laughs> no. No, no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> How different do you think it would be if you grew up there now mm -hmm. with access to the internet and social media? Oh, God, I probably would have, I probably would be a monster. I'd probably be an influencer. I would have streaks in my hair. Uh-huh. And um, a fake tan. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, although there is plenty wrong with those things. Yeah, it could be both. It could be both. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm glad that I didn't because, you know, especially when I was little, what I thought was funny was just like things that were shocking. Yeah. I made a lot of like abortion jokes as a teenager and like I would I'd be canceled. I would be canceled. Do you remember the first time that you saw a, a gay person on film or on television? I know for me, Danny from uh, The Real World New Orleans. Oh, okay. Was like so monumental to me mm -hmm. because I remember the fear that his gayness instilled in me. Yeah. And I didn't at the time recognize the connection of it all, but I felt some proximity to him. Yeah. That was disconcerting. I remember the episode where Ellen came out, the episode of her show. It was like publicized, like, this is going to be the, this is the episode where she comes out. I didn't really watch the show, but I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this. Then uh, we didn't live with my dad, but he would some kind, sometimes like come over to like pass out and sleep it off. You know what I mean? So he did that night, which meant he was in the living room and I couldn't watch Ellen. But then he was passed out and I like turned the TV on and the volume was on on like four. And I had like my ear pressed up to the speaker of the television just because I wanted to hear Ellen come out. And I didn't know why. But then, here I am. What did you feel immediately after? Do you remember? Because I feel like that has to be such a foundational moment. I think I just turned the TV off and went to bed. <laughs> I think it felt like, okay, I did that. Check that off the list. I heard her say that. I'll keep that in my brain for later. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, when did you first discover that you were gay? Mm -hmm. And how formative was that discovery to your childhood or, or, or adulthood? I remember... You came out or discovered it in your adulthood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I discovered it um, on my way here. <laughs> yeah. I Welcome. was like, maybe I am. <laughs> um, I was in fifth grade and, um, you know, I'd been called like a fag like since I could walk. But I remember being in fifth grade and this boy in my class showing me a bug bite like on his pelvis. He was like, look. And I got like I was must have been like at the early early stages of puberty and I was like uh-oh I liked seeing that part of your body and then I was like oh god everyone was right I am gay oh no but then I would pray to god to make me bi because I thought like well this attraction to men is way too strong that's not going anywhere but can you just please throw in some attraction to women please god and um, he didn't. <laughs> he really didn't. <laughs> I would try to do my own version of conversion therapy that I made up in my head, which is fucked up but also funny. So I would jerk off thinking about guys and then at the last second change it to a girl, hoping like that means that I'm not gay because I thought about her. 
Um, but it was always the same girl, and it was always Audrey Hepburn. So just like mm, that strong jawline and um, flat chest. Powerful. Yeah, very powerful. Very, really powerful. It's so interesting hearing everyone's experience and sort of like how much how how much they were told they were gay yeah. uh, versus their own discovery. Because the reason I brought it up is like my entry point to figure out my sexuality was always being called it as a form of yeah. a put down. Yeah. So my association became, well, everyone hates this thing. Yeah. So as I'm starting to be like, am I this thing? It's under the veil of to be this thing is to be bad. Right. And I think a lot about like the youth today who I think I'm, not a youth. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I, come on. Yeah. Uh, but I think that they have a perception early on that's less rooted in that shame. Yeah. Maybe some. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, For me, when I realized it, I was like, oh, fuck. Everyone was right. I am gay. But I said no. So I have to keep up this lie because otherwise it's bad press. Yeah. And um, I also remember like... All of my girlfriends being like, he's not gay, you know, like sticking up for me. They didn't really mean, no, he's not gay. They meant he's not bad yeah. is what they meant. Yeah. Um, but when I came out, a lot of my girlfriends were like, but I've been telling people you're not. And I was like, well, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, <laughs> you just got to be me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you left home at 18 Mm -hmm. to follow your then boyfriend to New York City. Yeah. Well, I actually moved out of my uh, family's home when I was 16. And I lived with a cousin in a different town to finish high school. I wanted to go to a school with a better drama program. And that's also when I came out. So I think I subconsciously wanted a new start so I could come out you sort of mentioned before when you were talking about the ellen story mm-hmm. about your father coming in and mm-hmm. sort of being a little bit loaded it sounded yeah. like yeah uh, now you're mentioning 16 moving in with your cousin yeah uh, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it what was your family life like prior to 16 just really like unstable both of my parents are alcoholics my mom was um sober for a lot of my childhood not all of it she was a single mom and she um was very depressed but not diagnosed. Um, Now she is, and she's much better. I I spent a lot of time with my friends' families because I hated being at home because it was, like, cold and sad, you know? Yeah. How uh, aware were you, or, like, when did you become aware that your version of home life was not the normal version of home life? Oh, I think I noticed that early as four or five, like, when I would go to my cousin's or my aunt's and uncle's house, and it was like, oh, this is a warm place and people talk to each other and they're nice and they don't pass out in yeah. front of the tv i want to retract the word normal because I, I i don't think anything is no you can't retract it mm-hmm. uh so 16 you move in with your cousins mm-hmm. uh how much did life change as a result a lot it was just one cousin he's trans but this was pre him coming out i wish it would have been more like mentor mentee relationship because there's probably a lot I could have learned from him but I was a teenager I was a brat you know I had a lot of sorry getting choked up um I had a lot of (laughs) independence at home because my parents were just not around so my cousin tried to like be sort of a parent to me and like set rules and I did not respond well to that like 
be home by 10, things like that. So we really actually clashed and it was hard. And I'd also never, for as like fucked up as my family and home life was, I never had to do chores. <laughs> so I had no responsibilities really. So that was a big learning curve, like doing dishes and doing my laundry. I'm curious about the connection between your upbringing mm -hmm. and comedy. Um, not at all. Not at all. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm, you know, it's hard to like, um, that's something for my, um, for like a college professor slash biographer to unpack someday. Uh -huh. I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I was thinking about it because I was watching this um, documentary on Josephine Baker Everyone just talked about her so reverentially and like what she meant as a symbol of the times. And then it just occurred to me like, oh, she was also a person. That's looking at things in a way that I can't really contextualize because I'm just living my experience. Yeah. I was with a guy the other night who asked me to describe my personal style. Oh. And my response was, well, I said, I was like, I don't have personal style. And he was like, well, everyone has style. And I was like, yeah. I was like, I am comfortable talking about other people's style. Yeah, yeah. I'm not comfortable defining or thinking about my own style. Right, right. It's like you can't use your perception to perceive yourself, yeah. really. Everything suddenly becomes skewed. Right. But it's like, but it's like, no. I trust my perception in every other sense very sharply. Yeah. Uh, and then the second it gets sort of mirrored back, it's like, I... Uh, yeah, yeah. Chaos. I mean, I I definitely think I used um, comedy to soothe myself. Mm. Like, making myself laugh was always, like... I, that's something I still do. Like, I love making myself laugh when I'm alone. I love calling myself an idiot. I just love being mean to myself. It really tickles me. On that note, let's take a break. <laughs> uh -huh. We'll be right back. If you enjoyed what you just heard, I have some good news for you. There are extended interviews with our talent available on our Patreon at patreon.com backslash shutupevan. For those of you that aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a way for myself, my producer Alden, to make a little bit of coin off of this podcast. That support will allow us to continue to make more episodes. So if you liked what you heard and want to support what we're doing and the continued effort to keep doing it, please consider subscribing to our Patreon today. And we're back with Cole Escola. Cole, we spoke over the break, mm -hmm. uh, excuse me, over the holiday break when we were setting this up, and I asked you what shows you were watching over the holidays, and yeah. you told me, I don't really watch anything besides The Crown and yeah. TCM, yeah. Uh, Turner Classic Movies. How would you describe your taste and sensibility when it comes to film, television, and theater? Um, I just love anything, period. Like, I want to be transported to um, a different time and place, and um, that's it. End of story. <laughs> Any more questions, Your Honor? Um, yeah, I love I love like quiet, gentle narratives or or super melodramatic, emotional arcs about you know a prostitute trying to redeem herself. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like there's this cultural inclination to value newness, mm -hmm. you know, like what's the new thing coming out to get mm -hmm. excited about to create fandom around. And so I find your taste to be so opposite of like the cultural trends. Mm -hmm. What makes you sort of keep your eye on properties, films, television, theater that other people might 
not it's not that they don't regard them it's that yeah. they're not thinking about them because they're too busy chasing the new it's not like a again like a conscious thing it's just what i like i'm i'm glad there's new stuff and i'm glad that people love new things and um you know every once in a while something like the crown will trickle into my line of vision i just know what i like and i'm stubborn yeah and i don't want anything new <laughs> ever Ever. What's your relationship like with The Real Housewives? I mean, I know you don't watch the show. Right. This is the most humiliating thing anyone could ever say, but I've been the bartender on Watch What Happens Live a couple times. Um, moment of silence, please. And um, I met Vicky, and um, I think that she's the only real housewife that I Fair. Met. Uh, okay, wait, because you mentioned it, I have to ask a question I've always wanted to ask mm -hmm. a bartender on Watch It Happens Live. Mm -hmm. In my mind, I'm saying this, you are not a bartender, you are first chair. That's how I think about you. Oh, and you know, there's you. there's the first chair, the second chair, which yeah. I always think about who goes in yeah. your sort of chair, yeah. and then the bartender. There's been multiple times, I remember back in the day when Billy Eichner was behind the bar, yeah. and I'll look at them and I'll be like, oh my God, there's certain people I'm like, how dare they be behind the bar? Yeah. And yet, I understand the value of being on late night television mm -hmm. and getting to plug a show or whatever yeah. you're working on and the idea that it is a valuable opportunity. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking when you got that offer and when it actually happened? I, I can't remember. I think the first time I did it with Jeffrey Self and so like to promote one of our shows and like, so that was fun. And then the next time it was like Christina Hendricks and um, Dylan McDermott. And I was like, well, I want to be he's the hottest man alive. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to do that. Yeah. And then the last time I did it was with Bernadette Peters. And so I was like, well, yeah, I want to be there for that. And that was weird because they asked me to do um, my impression of her for her. And I, I just blacked out for that moment. It, was that your first time seeing her in person? Once I saw her um, on the street on Ninth Avenue in like 2008, this was while Patty's Gypsy was going on, um, and I important. and we were yeah very important because I I remember thinking like, oh what is she doing out like at this time of night like so close to the St James like <laughs> you know. Like, too close to playing Patty's Gypsy. Yeah, playing with fire there, Bernadette. And then I did Mozart in the Jungle, and I never had scenes with her, but I would pass her on set and just take in her aura. Yeah. Yeah. I sat behind her at Orbe's memorial service. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Christmas and I couldn't believe how small she was in person yeah. in comparison to the times I'd seen her on stage mm-hmm. when her presence just mm-hmm. makes her the biggest person in the room. Yeah. Um, which makes me wonder, do you have a definitive Mama Rose? <sighs> Probably Patty. Hmm. I mean, I bet if I had seen Angela, she would be my definitive just based on the little clips that are available. But, um, yeah, Patty's my favorite. I think that's my favorite, one of my favorite roles ever written, period. Mm-hmm. And there's something so fun about watching all of these talented actresses mm-hmm. interpret it. Yeah. Do you enjoy that sort of process of like listening to the five different versions of Rose's turn, sort of uh, watching the nuances of how great performers perfect a role? Yeah, I love doing that. Yeah. That's all I do in my free time <laughs> is watch those clips over and over again. Work. Hello, Dolly. I've seen ever. I'm going to see Carolee, Carmelo, and um, Philadelphia in a few weeks. Wow. I saw, you know, I saw Bet once, Donna, Murphy, um, Bernadette three times, my favorite. And then I saw Betty Buckley when I was in yeah. Chicago doing a show. Boy, she was awful. Really? I, yeah. Get off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at first, I was like, oh, this is great. She's really, like, playing the the role of, of, of like, a widow. Um, like, it was so believable that she was just, like, she was just very believable as an actress. Mm-hmm. But she's not, like, the, the star quality wasn't there. And, like, in, in the second act, when she comes down those stairs in that red dress and everyone at the restaurant is like, welcome back after 10 years, I, she just played it like so forgettable. I was like, there's no way any of those waiters would remember her. She's just like a dumpy lady, you know? They'd be like, sorry, there's a, a two hour wait. <laughs> it's a two hour wait. Yeah. And she'd be like, no, Meanwhile, it's me. She's like, yeah, it's it's me. Dolly Levi. And they're like, I, again, ma'am, I'm, there, you can sit at the bar, you know? We'll be right back. And we're back with Cole Escola. Let's get into the YouTube of it all. Mm -hmm. You really were a pioneer of YouTube before YouTube was a thing that you do. Mm -hmm. Before it was sort of like, I don't you make videos, you put them on the internet. There was no term like virality. Right. What was your understanding of what you were making and who were you making it for? Jeffrey Self was really like the one behind it all. Like I would just go over to his apartment and he would have these ideas and then we would improvise and then we would upload them and then we would just watch like the view count go up and up and then like they would get reblogged by like the sword or like gay blogs and um we were just making them for ourselves and for people like us or with our sensibilities i should say and how much sort of like pre-pro were you doing I would go to his house at 11.30 a.m. and by 3, we had already shot. The whole process was like three or four hours, you know. Do you have a favorite of the early, early videos of yours together? My favorites are actually ones that no one really remembers or likes. Like um, (laughs) this one called, I think, The Turtle or Feminist Literature Lesson. What did you do last night? I was at Murphy's Bar last night from 9 p.m. to 11.45 p.m. and I have eyewitnesses that can prove it. I was buying butter. What the boop are we gonna do? We're gonna sit on the couch and think about it. 
Okay, Simone de Beauvoir. She was a woman, she was a writer. Some scientists even venture to say she was a woman writer. Any questions? Was she a woman? Excellent, excellent question. And yes, she was a woman. I really think we were some of the first... <laughs> this sounds like so um, self-congratulatory, but there's nothing to be congratulated about being on YouTube. I just want to say. <laughs> so if I sound like I'm bragging, please know that I'm fully ashamed of my career online. But I, I think we used like jump cuts for comedic effect. And I don't remember like seeing other people doing that at the time. So you're welcome, everyone else. And now it's like really annoying that people do it. And it's like this stupid device that everyone uses. And I don't, I'm not saying, you know, we started it like I'm sure. Oh, that's my dad. <laughs> Another video of yours that I think of uh, from early on, speaking of jump cuts, mm -hmm. uh, is the Sex in the City mm -hmm. movie. Yeah. What happens in that video? We're trying to get tickets to the Sex in oh, the City yeah. movie. <laughs> Hey guys, I'm so excited because Colt was in the process of ordering tickets to the Sex and the City midnight showing tonight here in New York City. Yeah, hi, Colt. Uh, put me through to Kim Cattrall, please. Hello? Yo, T-Bone, yeah, Cole. Uh, no, I have plenty of cocaine, actually. I'm fine, thanks. But do you have tickets to Sex and the City? No, 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 what, what do you mean you can't get me the tickets? You're fucking worthless. You're a piece of shit. And I hope to fucking God that you die before the next time I see you, Mom. <laughs> That's it. And then I, I kill someone for it. And all of our videos, like, we relied so much on murder. We just didn't know how to, like, up the stakes or, like, end anything. So everything was, like, and then I kill someone. But I see a through line there because then... Well, thank you. Because <laughs> then we go to the mom commercial. Yeah. And it's like, so it's actually funny bringing that video up and, and connecting these dots here, mm -hmm. but like, it kind of works. Thanks. I mean, that <laughs> that might be like the my um, the ultimate version of the murder yeah. punchline. Obviously, you know Guy Branham. Mm -hmm. So I wrote a piece uh, for The Advocate in 2016 mm -hmm. uh, about the lack of gay comedians. Uh -huh. And Guy was one of the people that I interviewed for the piece that sort of unlocked the story for me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to read you something that he said and get your response. Mm -hmm. So he said, so long as gays are uninterested in gay comedy, we'll have careers as garnishes to straight people's real entertainments. When we become like Kevin Hart, comics who can speak to a community and make money from it, the industry will have to pay attention. So what I sort of took away from that conversation was, and something that guy spoke about was sort of like gay people's lack of regard for gay comics. Mm -hmm. um, what's been your experience of gay men with regard to their support for your work versus straight men or women? I all my audiences are are fags. That's all. That's <laughs> that's it. Even the females there are fags. Everyone is. Can I say that on this podcast? You can say that. Okay, on this I own it. I yeah. own it. I also feel uniquely like a faggot. Yeah, me too. I'm not a gay man. I'm a faggot. Yeah. Get it right. Yeah. Thank also, you. Also, I, yeah. I feel as though just from the way I walk to the way I talk, I'm giving off an energy that's it's there's faggotry. Yeah, me too, and I love it. And um, I remember being at this uh, show where Justin Sayer he told the audience like instead of saying like bravo when you clap for me next i want you to shout faggot 
as if you're saying bravo. And it was all these gay men shouting, faggot, faggot. <laughs> and it was so, like, I almost cried. It was so beautiful. It felt so celebratory and yeah. like, yeah, we're faggots and it's great. Yeah. Yeah. So much of Justin's work, I feel like, has that effect. Yeah. Where it's like both insane and then like insanely moving. Yeah, yeah. There's something about just those communal experiences with a room of faggots mm -hmm. uh, addressing the faggotry of it all. Yeah. Because I think we're so conditioned to spend so much of our lives subverting or squelching. Mm -hmm. Is that a word? Sure. Squelching that faggotry. Mm -hmm. That the idea that like not only can you be that, but we can all be that together and we'll be better off for it. Yeah. It's yeah. like kind of revolutionary. Yeah, I mean, maybe not now. Yeah. <laughs> but now that, like, like, but unfortunately, I still have those things ingrained in me. So that makes me, I guess, I'm only 33, but in um, the gay world, I'm, uh, I think I'm a boomer. Hmm. I'm a gay boomer. Yeah. Yeah. Especially with your sensibility, though, which yeah. sort of, like, your preference for a Turner Classic movie mm -hmm. over Drag Race. Mm -hmm. The fact that I'm a Republican. Yeah. All yeah. those things. Yeah. Yeah. You love Kellyanne Conway. I love Kellyanne. Yeah. Yes, Diva. <laughs> we stand. I've often wondered why you're not on SNL. Oh. And I know I'm not the first person to ever ask you that, but I'm just curious if that's even of interest to you. I mean, yes and no. Like, I, um, of course, I, I grew up, like, that show was very, you know, formative for me, but... I like what I'm doing now. You know, I have friends that work on SNL and it seems really hard and really exhausting. But I know the exposure is like insane. So like, I don't know. But I don't really have an interest. I've never auditioned. I did like an SNL showcase that was like a pre-audition, you know? Uh, the feedback I got was that the fact that I was in my underwear was really distracting. And I was like a little disheartened by that. And I was like, okay, like I'm, this isn't maybe for me. I'll see myself out in I'll my underwear. I'll see myself out in my underwear, <laughs> you know? And yeah. I, you know, I work with Amy Sedaris and she wasn't on SNL. So I feel okay about it. Yeah. But if I'm being honest, like, yeah, that would have been a great thing to happen. Maybe when I was like younger and hungrier, but now that I'm 33 and 80 in gay terms, um, I just want to live my quiet life and die peacefully. Yeah. Yeah. With your wife and your With husband. With my wife and my husband and, and my kids. kids. Privately. Privately. Uh, but one more SNL question that I do want to ask is, you know, you mentioned the three ladies earlier, mm -hmm. Sherry, Molly, and Anna. Was that the yeah. three? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, watch, watching this show growing up, uh, I, I too watched the show a lot growing mm -hmm. up. I too love those women. I think about Sherry O'Terry quite a bit. Yeah. I think that she was never really given her flowers. Right. Like, yeah. you know, seeing her wheeled out on the New Year's special to say, I'm Barbara Walters and this is 2020. Like, yeah. seeing her become a novelty act is, like, disrespectful to, like, the chops. Like, yeah. I wish that she would have had Will Ferrell's trajectory with yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, when we grew up, there were instances of straight people playing gay, but there mm -hmm. really weren't gay cast members. I know there's been a few on SNL's history. Yeah. But in general, when there were gay sketches uh, or sketches with gay characters, they were often played by straight people. They often were 
stereotyping gay people. I, I wouldn't say that they were necessarily like awful depictions of right. us, but you know, more stereotypical. And now we have multiple LGBTQ writers on the show. There are yeah. LGBTQ cast members. What's it like for you just as a comedian to sort of watch the evolution of this show's uh, experience and understanding of our community? Oh God, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> like, it sounded headier uh, yeah. when it came out of my mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I don't know. I, don't, I guess I don't feel that responsible for having like for thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not like, like, well, I've looked at the evidence and I can concur that uh, we've come a long way, baby. What's I, it like for you though, to see, like, I think about the actress, uh-huh. uh, Julio and Bowen's sketch. Oh, yes, um, yeah. With, with uh, Emma Stone. Emma Stone, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm obsessed with that sketch. I yeah. think about it all the time. The, the world building in yeah. particular. Yeah is like distinctly yeah. queer. Yeah. And so for me, it's just like to see those sorts of sketches now and thinking about growing up and what I was seeing, there's something about it that's like, it's just uh, to see how like how much the show is sort of queered is like cool. Yeah, no, it, it is like validating and um, I think ultimately helpful for all queer people. It proves that like things with a queer lens are marketable and or like there is an audience for things with a queer lens like it makes me so happy when like wells for boys when i saw that i was like yes with fisher price play sets some kids can be four-star chefs some kids can win the race but some just long to be understood introducing wells for sensitive little boys from fisher price like it felt very validating maybe in a gross way like i shouldn't be concerned with like how viable of a commodity like the queer lens is i probably shouldn't be thinking about it in those terms but look i love to pay my rent yeah and um i like to go on vacations yeah so yeah just a couple last questions uh uh, a rather vague one but what do you find funny pain Hmm. i'm kidding uh (laughs) i'm not (laughs) what do i find funny I'm going to think about it for 10 seconds. Okay. And then I'm going to leave. Bye. Um, I, I think um, my favorite type of comedy is um, all character-based and especially characters that want something and are earnest. Like, I don't really like this sort of trend. I think it's on its way out of like... Ugh, eye-rolly, like, sarcastic, like, mean humor, you know? Like, that's not funny to me to watch people just react to things around them in a negative way. Like, I like to see characters who want something genuinely, like Valerie Cherish on The Comeback. Yeah. Yeah. One of my absolute favorite things about Valerie that I Mm -hmm. think about all the time is Mark, her husband, and how much he loves her. Yeah. And I think that part of why the show is as successful as it is, uh-huh. is because Valerie is not constantly wanting. Right. There are things in her life that she has. Yeah. And one of them being this really supportive husband. Right, right. She's not a sad sack. She, exactly. Like, yeah. And I think that that nuance yeah. drives the whole show. Yeah. And it's like, for instance, like when Valerie puts on the Nolan Miller dress, yeah. she actually looks good in yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I just think that like, there's something in that Michael Patrick King quality and uh, Lisa, Lisa, obviously, yeah. of building this character who 
makes strong choices, gets what she wants some of the time. Yeah. One of the great things about watching Valerie, I mean, there's many great things, but it's yeah. like, it's that sometimes people will watch it and be like, oh, she's so sad. Yeah. And I'll just be like, you're, that, sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, no, she's not. No, she's not. And um, she really wants something. She's really earnest and genuine in her like desires and yeah. her, her, her goals. And like, I, yeah, I'm just glad that trend seems to be on its way out of like, like fuck this world. Like, yeah. like, yeah. Let me ask you about a type of humor that I sort of deploy a lot and I've gotten a lot of pushback to lately. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like sort of this woke thought culture mm-hmm. amongst gay men on mm-hmm. social media. You know, the most common trope will be like a guy with an eight pack Oh, posing right, right. shirtless and being like just housed, you know, yeah. McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I will post that a lot yeah. and then I'll follow it up with, with the Meryl screaming. Yeah, the Meryl screaming. Yeah. It's so Mary good. Louise. Mary Louise, Mary Louise. <laughs> Mary Louise. Yeah. And part of why I do that, and I'm mm-hmm. not a comedian, mm-hmm. part of why I do that is because I think that it's both really toxic mm-hmm. and I think it's funny. Not 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 me adding the gift, just right. this idea that we have this culture. And so I've done it for a long time. Recently, when I've been doing it, I've received a little bit more pushback from certain people about it being mean and or like an unproductive part of like the larger conversation mm-hmm. within our uh, conversations within our community. I push back at that, but if people feel that way, they feel that way. What's your sort of perception around this culture of like gay people making fun of other gay people on the internet? I love it. (laughs) I'm for it. Like if you're putting stuff out there, you gotta be willing to like have people have an opinion about it. What we're supposed to like let people post anything they want and you have to say good job for everything they do. Like, eh, it's all fair game. Yeah. I noticed a lot of people were saying that people like me that do this, we are ultimately doing it for clout. Oh. And 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 perhaps that is the case for some people. Sure, I feel like fine. for me though, it's like I'm never hoping they see it. I'm right. never hoping it goes viral. Right. I think it's just something that I know that there's other people who feel similarly about this, that I enjoy that communal moment of us yeah. literally having the cathartic uh Meryl Streep scream moment. Yeah. So the person that posts that, the eight pack with like just housed McDonald's is doing, they're doing that for clout. So what if someone is making fun of them for clout? It's everyone's doing the same yeah. thing. It makes me think of gay vlog, gay vlogger, gay vlogging, gay, gay. Yeah, yeah, thank um, you. Which was literally you sort of poking fun at this before it even became a full out phenomenon. Yeah. Hey everybody, it's me. Um, It's been a long time since I made a video. Tweet at me what color hoodie you think I should wear next week. Hashtag steak knife for your chance to be on TV. If I can just reach out to one person out there, it gets better. Okay, so that's all I have for this video. Follow me on Twitter. Ahead of its time. I was born too soon and started too late. No, other way around. No. I I was born too late. No. no, I was born too born soon too and started soon too, and late. too late. Yeah, yeah. Uh, love. Uh, okay, so my last question, uh, to the extent that you're comfortable talking about it, uh-huh. I'm curious what it's like. Uncut. In... Now we know. Thanks. Bye. Bye. What's it like dating as a famous gay person? Um. Uh, okay, 
I don't want to, I know that I'm not famous, right? I'm not famous, famous, but I do, you know, like on the apps, people will say like, oh, I love your work. It's nice. But the only sort of thing that's hard for me is sometimes someone will match with me or message me because they're a fan or like, because they like something I do and they like want to be friends or like just want to say like your work and I don't know like I use those apps to like hook up and like date you know so I get confused sometimes when I'm like oh does this person want to date me or like yeah it's just that part is tricky and I've been in situations where like you know I'll um match with a guy uh this happened once i i'm uh, this or this guy dm'd me on on instagram and he asked me out to dinner i even showed friends and they were like oh yeah he's flirting and then i got there and he was there with his boyfriend which i didn't know he had and he was like we're just big fans and like i felt so humiliated and that's happened a few times where like i'll go on what i think is a date then i'm sort of embarrassed to learn that they're like oh no sorry that just makes me feel like a deformed (laughs) um goblin yeah which is where the goblin commuter of hoboken comes from got it yeah it's weird too because it's like people come into these interactions with the context of you that you don't have for them yeah and so even if they don't fan out for instance it's just an interesting situation I am comfortable calling you a famous person, even if you are not. And I feel like as a famous person, so often uh, I think about just the human interactions and how much more difficult it is to be seen as a a human. Mm -hmm. One thing that Christopher John Rogers, my last guest, talked about was his DMs with Lizzo. And he said that he sort of got into a thing with her over DM because she was dipping her pretzel in the wrong sauce. She's not glazed. And we were talking about sort of like how much... They've developed, he dressed her for several events, uh-huh. but how much they've developed this friendship because that's the kind of shit they talk about. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of my DMs, whether it be, you know, with Lisa Rinna or what have you, mm-hmm. is like, for instance, after every red carpet, I will DM Lisa Rinna the following morning and get her rundown. Yeah. I'm not doing it to post it or. Or anything. Yeah. I actually am doing it because I, I have access to her yeah. and I care about her opinion. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why we've developed this very weird friendship is because of how much I just sort of treat her like a human. Because mm-hmm. I just, you know, yeah. well, she is. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting, though, thinking about that in the dating context. Yeah. Especially when you're like, in a situation where it's like, I just want to fuck. Like, yeah, yeah. And I also then, like... <sighs> Now I'm a little more explicit, which also worries me because, I don't know, it's just, it seems abrasive to be like, is this sex or is this a date? Or do you just want to be, like, to say that up front is so vulnerable. And it's also, I feel a little confrontational when I do it. But I just don't want to, like, go on what I think is a date and then have it end and then that person be like, so this weird thing happened where I, like, I met up with Cole just to have coffee and, like, he was such a perv, you know? <laughs> like, I don't want to, like, make anyone uncomfortable that way. And I feel like maybe I have. Has the approach that you've been using been effective, though? Being more forthright? I think so. I mean, it, it's definitely, like, you know, sometimes I've gotten the answer that I don't want to get. Like, someone matched with me and was like, we were talking for a long time, and then I was like, want to hang out? And I was like, is this a date? And he was like, 
oh, I, I'm not really dating right now. And I'm like, well, then why are you on Tinder? Like, yeah. what is this? Like, I get it. He was trying to like gently, sweetly tell me he wasn't interested. But then why did you match with me? Yeah. Uh, but then I was. he was like, so do you want to just hang out as friends? And I was like, I have a lot of friends that I don't get to see enough of. And if I'm going to spend time getting to know someone, I would like it to be in the context of dating, you yeah. know? Yeah. So that's happened a few times. And um, it's just such a waste of time. Fair. But that's life. That is life. Life is a waste of time. Life is a waste of time. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Sarah Michelle Gellar? I don't, I mean, again, because I only watch TCM. She's not on there. She's not on there. I think she's beautiful. Is she friends with Selma Blair? Best friends. Okay, okay, okay. I, I'm touched by that. Yeah. <laughs> um, other than that, like... Any any avenue into her work at all? Just looking at, at what's his name, Ryan Felipe, on the cover of the Cruel Intentions VHS when I was a kid going, I'm going to save that image for later in my head. <laughs> um, so she's sort of like tangentially there yeah in that she's there it's kind of like the Catherine hepper yeah 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 (laughs) yeah the last minute i'll I'll think about her (laughs) um okay yeah that's your way to it uh okay so before we wrap i just want to end by kind of finding out what's next for you what are you currently working on what are you excited about to come in this i guess we can still say this is the new year um i'm filming amy sedaris's show right now as well as search party and um Writing a movie with John Early and our friend Drew Tobia, and um, just Can you say any more about the movie. Oh, I don't want to say okay. it because I don't. Not because like I don't want anyone to steal the idea. We're really slow writing it, so I could say what it is, and then two years from now, someone else will make it. Fair. Yeah. Um, any chance that we'll be seeing you on stage again anytime soon? No. <laughs> no. Never again. Yeah, I'm really like. I have no um, desire to perform live. Really? Again. Yeah. Well, I'm taking a little break. Are you ser- you seriously have no desire to? Or you're being funny? No, no, no. Uh, well, both. Like, I'm sure eventually someday I will want to again. But no desire. Yeah. It really is a lot of work to put together a live show. And I'm intimidated by it. And I really love the last show that I did so much that I don't. I don't want to like compete with that in my mind. So I need to like have some more time in between that and whatever I do next, just for myself um, artistically in my mind. No one, no one cares. Like no one who comes to see the shows is like interesting. Like in the last one, I prefer, you know, no one even remembers, I'm sure. Well, please don't not return to the stage at some point. Oh, you're too kind. No, you're it, too it would kind. be I would be a loss to the performing <laughs> arts. I kind of think that's like figures like you and Justin and Bridget, Sandra are so like fundamental to sort of keeping what's left of this thing that once was New York that continues that's to sort so of sweet. Thanks. fly by. I mean, I I like people invite me to do their comedy shows a lot, but because I don't really do stand up because I'm bad at it. I, I'm just really bad at talking. I, I hate lying. Like, it makes me uncomfortable, and I'm always worried people can tell. So that makes me a bad storyteller because I'll try to get the facts straight. So, you know, like, in a traditional stand-up set, someone will be like, so I was um, with my boyfriend on Saturday, and he said, and 
whereas I would pose that like, so I was with my, I got we weren't boyfriends then. This was like in March, I want to say, or no, it was May. And we were together, I think it was my, like, I'll try to get all the details correct. And that's bad storytelling. It's bad stand-up. So anyway, but, when I, but interestingly yeah. enough, great viral video content because I think about that descriptive nature, yeah. as being such a part of, you, of the videos that I love. Yeah, yeah, I love I love <laughs> doing that, but um, it doesn't work mm. like in a stand-up show. And also, so what I end up doing is like characters and monologues, and those just tend to fall flat at stand-up shows. So for my ego's sake, I don't do it. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Thank you so You're much. You're welcome. Thank you. I hope that wasn't too boring. No. Okay, uh, okay. Not even a little mm. bit. I'm Evan Ross Katz. Shut Up Evan is produced and edited by Alden Peters. This podcast is made possible in part by our supporters on Patreon. So we tip our hat to you all. Go to patreon.com backslash shutupevan to get access to bonus content, including extended interviews and bonus clips. And again, from the bottom of my heart, thank you so much for giving a shit about anything that I have to say. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.